and uh, the Brandons are going to do uh, Lee Carter and his family in, in Dominican Republic, and Jane Gordon is going to start a prayer team for the, the Howards. So uh, be in prayer for them. If you want to join those teams, get all those guys, and you can certainly do that. Uh, if you didn't make it to the to the lobby, there's supposedly donuts for dads in the lobby. At 10. Well, at 10, we're not starting, now. We're starting now. Okay, we're cool. So they're not there now. Uh, I didn't know that. I thought they were, but then I ain't going there. Uh, Find the Sun starts this coming Wednesday, so that's happening uh, pretty soon. So uh, just be in prayer for that. Am I done? I think I'm done. Let's stop. That's amazing. Until it starts again. Until it starts again. Uh, if you turn over to the book of Mark, uh, we're going to read Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 9, and then we'll pray. And uh, you know, so we're back in class, so we can all take turns praying. Praise the Lord for that. Um, so I'll start off prayer after I read. And just kind of keep in mind Annabeth Bonison, uh, the Balkans, the Seals. Oh, you guys are here. Thanks for being here. Appreciate that. But we'll pray for you anyway. Yeah. That'd be good, right? And then um, the Arnies, who are not here today, and just pray for Joyce uh, Slayover um, and her, and her daughter. And keep all those in mind. So, Mark chapter 4. We'll just read the first nine verses for this morning. And he began again to teach by the seaside, and there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that they entered into a ship and sat in the sea. And the whole multitude was by the sea and the land. And he taught them many things in parables, and said unto them, uh, This is said unto them in his doctrine, Hearken, behold, there went out a, a sower to sow, and it came to pass as he sowed some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground where it was had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up, but it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it scorched, and because of it, that it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And others fell on good ground, and did yield fruit that sprang up, and increased and brought forth some thirty, and some sixty, and some hundred and he said unto them he that hath an ear to hear let him hear so i'll start and then uh let others join, join in and i'll close it all up father heaven lord thank you for today thank you for um just the opportunity to be back in class together with with uh, members of our class i know not everybody's here many are probably uh, doing other things with family i know this is a special day uh, honoring fathers um, but some can't be here for other reasons as well, medically reasons, medical reasons, things like that. But hopefully they're online, being able to join us uh, remotely, and I pray that, that that is working correctly. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you do. We do want to be able to hear what you say. And so, Lord, that, that, Lord, if we have ears, and we all do, Lord, that we would open our ears up spiritually speaking to be able to hear what you want to say to us. We do pray for uh, the growing list of people that are on our Fairly, Father, with Annabeth and the Vulcans and the Arnies and uh, the Steels and, and Joyce and so many others, Lord. I'm sure I'm missing names right now. But I just pray, Father, that you would uh, move in their lives, that you would show yourself uh, to be mighty in their lives, that you would accomplish what needs to be accomplished in their lives, that others would see you as well. And we'll praise and thank you for all of that. 
Father in heaven, we just thank you for your word, and, and we know that your word uh, does not return void, Lord. So we just we just praise you for that. We praise you for uh, the Bible publishing ministry, and Lord, we just pray for your your guidance and your direction and in getting the Bibles that we have this summer to get done. So we just pray for that. We pray for the workers that we need, and uh, we pray machines would work well. We just pray that our church would continue that each one of our members would, would just live their lives so people would see you, would see uh, Christ in us. So I pray for that. I pray that we would be uh, involved in the, in the ministries like the Bible publishing ministry, getting your word out, as well as all the other ministries of this church, Lord. I just thank you for the people that are here today. Thank you for the people that are obedient to you, that, that love you, Lord. And, and Lord, I just pray for our church together that we'd be united, that... Uh, uh, whether they're absent or, or present, Lord, that we would still be working towards the same goal of to, to praise you and to, to live our lives for you and, and share with the rest of the people around us and the world around us uh, your love and, and your word, Lord. So we, we just thank you for that, and uh, we just thank you again that we have a Bible that we can hold in our hands and uh, know what you want from us. So we just praise you for that, Lord. Lori, this morning we slipped up. This one of my favorite parables, Lord, that you've Lord, it just, it's encouraging, even though it, there is some that do not, you know, the, the fowls come and take away, or the seed falls on stony ground, or the sun dries it out, there's still opportunity here, Lord, for those that did fall on good ground, Lord, just give that encouragement here, especially as we go out to Spark in the Park, or as we serve you, Lord, in any ministry capacity, Lord, just, we want to have that fall down on good, a good ground. They are both dead. But Lord, I'm so grateful that I have an eternal heavenly father. Amen. And though he died, he is alive today. Amen. And he lives in my heart. We bless beyond measure because of that. Thank you, Lord. Well, Father, we conclude in prayer. We just thank you so much for loving us and even as uh, um, Bob had mentioned, Lord, we have a Father in Heaven, and we're so thankful, Lord, that we have a, that eternal Father that uh, has uh, constantly looked out for us, cared for us, protected us, um, saved us uh, uh, from ourselves sometimes uh, when, it, when that needed to be done, Lord. And we're just thankful for that. We pray, Father, now that anything that's being done in this church, Lord, whatever room, wherever, wherever your word is being spoken, we pray, Lord, your power your Holy Spirit would accomplish its, its uh, intended purpose in the hearts of, co of any person that is there. We pray for our children's ministry uh, to uh, get going again, Lord. It's one of the difficult ones because we need workers and we need, uh, we just need everything um, to be able to reflect who you are and how you take care of your, your church. And we just pray to you and thank you for all of that. We ask your blessing on this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in the book of Philippians, and we're actually starting in chapter 3 this morning, but I want to, I want to go back to chapter 2, and I just want to read the last couple of verses in chapter 2. It's kind of a, just to kind of get a running start uh, on, on chapter 3. And, uh, and so, cause, well, I'll explain why here in just a minute, but I, I basically believe that 
as you read through chapter 3, you see it connected, and it's connected backwards to chapter 2 at the end of everything that he's saying here. And I, and I hope you were able to hear the message from last week and the things that we talked about. But he says in chapter, chapter 2, verse 29, uh, receive them therefore in the Lord with all gladness and all such reputation because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me and then we're going to read down through the list of first four or five verses of, of chapter 3 so he says uh, that he is that to supply your lack of service in verse 30 toward me finally my brethren rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you and to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision, for we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whatsoever or hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. So we'll pause right there. We're going to go all the way down through verse 11 this morning. But it's just interesting how Paul sometimes does think, uh, you know, the words that we use. So he's, he finishes up chapter 2, and then he says in the very first word in chapter 3 is finally. So we know from that word finally that everything he was saying in chapter 2, he's concluding in chapter 3. And, uh, and so he's concluding some really interesting things. And so basically what he's concluding, he says, finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And that is his conclusion to the matter of chapter 2. And what was chapter 2 about, uh, especially in the last, starting in verse 16 down through verse 30, uh, we were talking about what, it, what a Christian missionary should look like. If you want to identify yourself as a, as a servant of God, we had three examples that, that Paul wrote about in verses 16 and 17 and 18. Paul was the example of the sacrificial uh, rejoicer. Notice that he's continuing the theme of rejoicing even in chapter 3. Uh, and then we had Timothy in verses uh, 19 through 24. And Timothy was, was that, that example for us of, of the, 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 this, I don't remember the title we gave him at the moment, but, uh, but he was somebody that was, as an example for us, a consistent servant. Uh, willing servant, uh, always willing to do what was what he was told to do. He would go wherever he was told to go. He would do whatever he was told to do, and he didn't he didn't balk at things. And sometimes that's what we do, right? Our pastor says, "I need you to do this," and well, I don't have time for that, or I don't I don't want to do that, or I don't do those things, you know. And sometimes that's what people are. But Timothy wasn't like that. And then we wrapped up uh, in verses 25 to 30 with Epaphroditus and all of that. And so so Paul gave us three examples of ministry. Uh, what it meant to look like, what a Christian should look like. And then he says, finally, rejoice in the Lord, in verse 3, in verse, in verse 1 of chapter 3. And so, what is he talking about here when he says, finally, rejoice? So, finally, what does the word rejoice actually mean when you think about rejoicing? What does that mean? I know we all, we all relate that word fairly well, but uh, simply it means full of cheer, uh, full of calm. So, our attitude is a cheerful attitude. Our, our demeanor is a calm demeanor. You know, we're not we're not all stressed out. Unfortunately, I get stressed out. I get tense. I get and I have a temperament. In my situation today, I can blame it on that. But uh, but I have a temperament where sometimes I I'm not joyful like I ought to be. And what Paul is saying is rejoice. 
finally, if you're a Christian, rejoice. And I know that a lot of people use that as the theme of the entire study of the book of Philippians. And that's not where we're going, but you can't, you can't bypass that in, in verse 1 when he says, finally rejoice. So there's a, there's an, there's a rejoicing means to be cheerful, to be calm, to, be, to, to, to consider glory. What does it mean to be in the glory of God? Well, if you're in the presence of God, what does that look like to you? How, how do you feel when you're in the presence of God? You ever think about that you're actually, at every point in time in your life, that you're actually in the presence of God? He's everywhere you are. I mean, you carry the Spirit of God in you. He, you're the, the temple of the Holy Ghost. And you carry the Spirit of God with you. But you know what? God is with you too. And you're standing in His Shekinah glory. The light that emanates from God is shed all over you. And so that ought to make you joyful just to know that. And uh, and one one last word is is to be boasting of all of that. You know, you, uh, so think about this for just a minute. Uh, what about um, people in the world that see you as a Christian, you, 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 you want to be a Christian, but they don't see you acting like a Christian. They don't see you re- reflecting the joyfulness that a Christian is supposed to rejoice. How are they going to know what a Christian looks like? And that's a challenge that the world presents to the, to the Christian community all the time. Is Well, you don't look like a Christian. I remember when I first got saved and some of the men that I worked with uh, were, were believers, but they never witnessed to me until I said, hey, I got saved. Oh, then they were all about talking about the Bible. But they never once witnessed to me. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. How come you didn't tell me? I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't have listened because, I mean, I was a lost guy, right? So I wouldn't have listened. But I expected a Christian to do that, right? To live in the joy that they had with God in their salvation and live like that. And so, so I believe that what Paul is doing is he's bringing the thinking from chapter 2 into a description of what a Christian really should look like. There's a characteristic that we should have, either, a, either be like Paul, be like Timothy, or be like Epaphroditus, but we also should reflect um, what a Christian really should look like, which is a joyful person. So for the true believer, our life must be one that finds joy in any situation. And you know what Paul says, right, in Philippians chapter 4, and we'll get to chapter 4, verse 4 later on. But he said, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And we always question in our mind, or verbally, how do you rejoice in all things, always? I mean, sometimes life just doesn't deserve rejoicing. But that's not what he's actually talking about. He's not talking about happiness. So we'll get to all of that. For the true believer, our life must be one that finds joy in any situation. Not joy in the situation, but joy in your heart. About, let me give you three things real quick, what, jo- what rejoicing does or what it, what it brings to you. First, uh, uh, this is why you should be joyful. Let me give you three reasons. If you're like, I don't know how to be joyful, I don't want to be joyful, let me give you three reasons. Number one, you have a Savior. You have a Savior. That's a good reason to be joyful. Number two, um, because you have been atoned for your, your, you have been atoned of your sinful nature. Jesus Christ hung on the cross and he atoned for your for your your nature. He died for you in your place. So you're not dying. That's a good thing to be joyful about. And number three is that you have communion with the with the Lord God. Uh, I mean you can talk to him, you can enter into his, his enter in, in, enter into his throne at any point in time in your life. You just 
close your eyes and start talking to God. And you're right there. You're in the presence of God. So those are three reasons why you should rejoice. And there's others. You could probably think of several others yourself. In Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 30, uh, the book of Proverbs says, Then I was by him, as one brought up with him, because he's our father, he brought us up. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. That's what God is looking for, is that we would constantly be rejoicing before him. So for the believer, our life is not about happiness. The Christian life is not about happiness. The Christian life is about finding joy in any manner of circumstances. Um, a high degree, when we're talking about um, uh, this joy, this finding this joy, this is a high degree of, um, what did my notes say? I can't even read it. Pleasure. That's it. I was working on this this morning and hand scribbling some things in. So the, the joy in verse 1 is, is a little bit different than the joy in, in, uh, in verse, verses 3 and 4. Um, where Paul says in verse 3, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. That rejoice is a little bit different than the, than the rejoice in verse 1. And it means a high degree of pleasure. And if you look at Proverbs, turn over to Proverbs chapter 29. Verse 2. Of course, all throughout Proverbs 29 is dealing with the issue of, of uh, joy. But he says in chapter 3, 29, verse 2, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked bear his, bear his rule, the people mourn. So there's a contrast between rejoicing and mourning. Um, so, you know what, too, too many times Christians look like they're mourning than they do rejoicing, and it confuses the world that's lost and needs needs to be led to a Savior. So, um, so this passage that we studied last week, starting in verse 17, was about sacrificial service to God by the power of the Holy Spirit, and four times in verses 16, 17, 18, and then down in verse 28, four times we see Paul encouraging us to be rejoice uh, to be rejoiceful. Uh, and you, I'm not going to go back and read that right now, but but if you if you did look at those, you'd see that he's consistently using the word rejoicing. Uh, that has to do with our attitude of ser towards serving God. Uh, Paul desired a, re a rejoicing in the day of Christ. That's one of the first things he's talking about. What is the day of Christ? When we see the Bible, it talks about the day of Christ. It's the second coming. Okay, so that's when you know, he's rejoicing. Doesn't that, doesn't that bring joy to your heart, knowing that Christ is going to return one day and take us all out of this place, take us on up to heaven? Amen. Amen. That's a rejoicing thing. But you know what we do with that? We tell other people, I'm going to heaven, I want you to go too. And I'm going to be joyful about it, not condescending or condemning to this person. They need to be saved too. And so that's how we use joy as a missionary, as a minister of the gospel, uh, to reflect what we want to uh, to save, to get some people saved. And so, Paul was desiring to rejoice in the day of Christ. Uh, he sees the strength of sacrifice in the joy to serve. You know, I think most of us would say, when I get the opportunity to serve, I find joy in serving. And that's that's a part of this. You know, so he talked all about service and sacrifice and doing uh, and going and being being what God wanted you to be. And he said, you know what, that brought joy to him brought joy to Timothy, brought joy to Epaphroditus. It should bring joy to you as well to serve. But so many, so many times, 
we don't find serving to be joyful. We find jer- jer- serving to be laborsome and tedious and tiring and, and irritating and frustrating. And maybe it is those things. But should we find joy? Yes, we should. And so, um, so this joy is shared among true believers like Epaphroditus and Timothy and the body of true believers. So having mentioned joy at least six times in the first two chapters, chapter one and chapter two, Paul has mentioned joy six times, and he's not grieved even now. He says, says I'm, I'm going to talk about joy, rejoicing in joy again, and it doesn't even grieve me that I'm bringing it up <coughs> seven times. Uh, you know, sometimes we get tired of hearing the same message over and over again. Paul says, that doesn't bother me. I'm going to keep I'm going to keep repeating this message over and over and over again because you need to hear it. And so, um, it's important to Paul. It's that important to Paul uh, and to the Christian identity that we are joyful at all times. And so, sure, sometimes we get weary hearing the same thing over and over again, but Paul never tired of encouraging believers to find joy in the life that they have by God. The word grievous, when he talks about being grievous there, it implies a, t- a, a, a tedious hardness to deal with the concept. But Paul says, hey, uh, the true believer, this thinking, this reflection on the life behavior is safe, meaning firm and sure. He says, don't feel that way. You should feel, you should be joy just talking about joy. And so he talks about being reminded and reminding others and anchoring us in the identity that we claim to desire to live. If you claim to be a Christian, you should act like a Christian. And how does a Christian act? Well, a willing service sacrifice. And we talk about that all the time. Let's not forget about the joyfulness that a Christian should should reflect as well. Um, It's really the why the lost world struggles identifying a true Christian. Because too often, they see no joy flowing from the Christian. And they wonder, I didn't know you were a Christian. And that's kind of how I felt about those guys at work. And like, I didn't even know you were a Christian. I had no idea based on the way you behave and the story you tell me and the things you do on the weekends. I had no idea you were a believer. You live like I do, and I was a lost guy. And so, anyway. Uh, and then Paul goes on in verse 2. He says, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of concision. And so, um, so what he's, what he's telling us here. It's to stay alert against the wildness of some people. That's the first thing. And then he also says to stay alert against the cause and the instigators of evil. There are people out there that want to destroy what what Christianity is about. There are people that want to uh, destroy what a church is doing. And so they're kind of equated to a pack of wild dogs. Um, I don't know if you've ever been chased by a pack of wild dogs or been involved in a pack of wild dogs, but that's pretty scary. I remember years and years ago, I was at Hillsdale Lake going fishing, and I had uh, put my boat in the water and parked and got in the boat and, and I'm cruising along the bank, and all of a sudden a pack of wild dogs come out of the trees down to the shoreline, and they're literally trying to get to me. I mean, I'm 30 yards away from them in a boat, thank goodness. And I'm thinking, what if they all just, what happens if they found me in the parking lot? That's when I bought my first gun. <laughs> I took it with me every time I went there. I'm like, I'll shoot those dogs if I have to. But anyway, the point is, is that wild dogs roam about to cause evil uh, and are contrasted with the work of serving God as a missionary. 
And so the work that they are spreading is not the same work that you should be spreading. It's not the work that Paul was preaching about uh, when he counseled us to work out our own salvation in chapter 2, verse 12. And so their work was the righteousness based on a particular works as a means of obtaining salvation. That's basically what they're dealing with. They're talking, and you remember Paul said, work out your own salvation, and we looked at that last week, uh, or week before last. But the idea of working out your own salvation has nothing to do with works-based salvation. But that's what a lot of these wild dogs are trying to convince the churches that you need to work out your salvation. You need to do what? Get circumcised. That's the first step for them to, to, to get you to a point of salvation. So they work, the work that they're spreading was not the same as Paul's work. Their work was a righteousness-based uh, salvation based on particular works as a means of, of obtaining salvation. Now we don't know if these, if these packs of dogs made it to Philippi. You really can't tell. He's warning them, but we do know that they that they were in Galatia. We know that they were in Corinthia. Uh, we know that they he followed Paul around to, to Thessalonica, every place that Paul went, other than Philippi. We don't know if they made it, to, but he is warning them to be to be careful about what what they're doing. Um, and so uh, here at HBF, we have to be on guard for wild dogs coming into our church. Uh, to create uh, a problem on about about our doctrine, about what we're teaching. Uh, and then he goes on he's, in verse 2, he, he continues on, he says, stay alert against the cutting away of the physical flesh. That word concision, that actually means to cut away, similar to the word circumcision, but it's different. Concision is a cutting away of the flesh, a mutilation of the flesh, while circumcision is a spiritual uh, ritual that is done in recognition of the of the uh, the covenant that God had with Israel, but it's the concision it, it, it makes a mockery of a circumcision. And what Paul is saying is, don't go that way. Don't just think that you have to do a work to get saved, because that's not true. Um, the Greek words for concision and, the, and, and for circumcision, they seem to be alike. They're really close to, to the same type of word, but they're different. Um, circumcision has a spiritual significance, or concision has a physical or a fleshly uh, significance. And Paul is saying, and he's going to get involved in the thing here in just a moment, that his flesh was worth nothing to him as a, as a believer and as a follower of Christ. And so, uh, three, three warnings that Paul has given to us to not let false believers steal our walk with the Lord. He's avoiding uh, a band of, or joining with a pact who had no sense of purpose. You know, sometimes people get involved with, with a what seems to be a religious organization, and it turns out that, they're, that they have nothing to do with salvation. They're all about religion, but they're not about salvation. And we get tied up in those groups sometimes. And avoid the work of false or evil workers who will take you down the wrong path and avoid the works-based salvation teaching that is out there. Okay, so, but then he says in verse 3 again, so he said verse 1, to rejoice, and then he said in verse 3, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. To merely cut away the flesh, he says there is no value, and to imply by teaching that circumcision was necessary for salvation is a false teaching. He says, rejoice in the Lord, not in the flesh. That's basically what he's saying. Rejoice in the Lord, don't rejoice in the flesh. Have confidence in him, not the ceremonial Jewish law. 
too many people had confidence in, in what the Jewish law said. And even today, some people think that they have to honor the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath, and those kind of things, even today, even, even in what we would say Christian church. Um, Paul connects worshiping God in spirit with rejoicing in Christ Jesus. Remember what John chapter 4, verse 24 says? God is the spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And that's what Paul wants us to do, is worship in spirit and truth, which is where we find our joy in that mode. And so he gives us four characteristics of true believers. Paul gives us four characteristics. So real simply, the first one is, true Christians are circumcised spiritually. Okay, that, that I mean, you got to get saved. So a true Christian has to get saved. In, in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, in whom also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That's a spiritual circumcision. That's not a concision. So kind of keep that in mind. And then he, he says another way to know, identify a Christian characteristic of a true believer is true Christians worship the Spirit of God. And often there's no joy. Let's see. Let's just pause right there. I think my notes here. Hopefully in the right direction. So the Christians worship the Spirit of God. In John chapter 4, verse 24, I've already read that. God is a Spirit, and they that worship Him worship Him in Spirit and in truth. And number three, true Christians glorify in Christ. They glorify they, they glory in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. You know what? That ought to be our, 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 our main point is that Christ is, is uh, has saved us. Christ is Christ is who we serve. Christ our life is about Christ. And then uh, number three, true Christ or number four, true Christians put no confidence in the flesh. And over the next five verses Paul's going to talk about the confidence of the flesh and give us a living example of what he means. And I actually like this passage of scripture here. I like this I like what Paul has to say. So let's read down. We'll start in verse four, we'll read down through verse eight says though I might have confidence in the flesh if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh I more so just think about what he's saying here says, I can I can have confidence in my flesh and if you, even if you have confidence in your flesh I have more confidence in my flesh than you have in your flesh that's what he's saying in verse 5 circumcised the 8th day and he gives his his, uh, his resume circumcised the 8th day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dumb, that I may win Christ. That's a lot to say right there, but Paul's basically saying there's a couple of things going on here. These verses are his testimony. You know, his testimony of the salvation experience. And they probably are one of the greatest personal testimonies written in the New Testament by anybody. Remember what it did when you go, go to the book of Acts chapter 9. I think most of you are familiar with what happens in chapter 9 in the book of Acts. This is where Paul gets saved. He meets Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. I just want to point out a couple of things in verses 5 and 6. Acts chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 says, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and kind of said, Lord, 
what was I having to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Okay, so when Paul got saved on this road, on the road to Damascus, it did not take long for him to realize the exchange that was taking place. And in your life, maybe you never imagined this either, but there was an exchange that was taking place. The moment you met Jesus and you accepted him as your Savior, you, you, you pled guilty and said, I need a Savior. Will you save me? Will you come into my life and, and save me? And, and, and I, I believe that you died and you were buried really and all of that stuff. Think about what's actually happening here. You're, you're in the process of an exchange that's taking place. You're exchanging your corrupt life for his glorified life. You're exchanging. This is a, this is a deal you're making with God. I hate to use that term because it makes it sound terrible. But this is a, a process that's happening. Just imagine what Paul is thinking. He's on the road to Damascus and he heard the voice. He heard some, a noise, a voice. He saw an image that turned out to be the Lord and he fell on his knees. And so we read the verses, right? If you go back, let me get back over there again. Um, in verses 3, 4, and so on. See, so the first verse, three verses are just him getting ready to go. Then verse 4, he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, while I was persecuted, thou me. And all of a sudden, Paul begins to think, what am I doing? What am I doing? Did you think about the things that you were like this the day you got saved? Did you consider... What am I doing? What kind of life have I been living? I want the life that Jesus is going to give me, and I want to give up the life that I no longer want to live. Because when you got saved, when you when you cried out to God and said to, to, through Christ and said, "Save me," you're saying, "My life, all of this stuff behind me, is useless. It hasn't accomplished anything in my life. It hasn't it hasn't done anything for me. I haven't." I haven't succeeded in anything. Well, maybe I'm rich. Maybe I'm a rich guy now, and I succeeded in the world and the flesh. But it didn't give me salvation. And so what you're saying is, this was useless. That's what I want. Did we actually think about that the day we got saved? Have we ever thought about that since the day after we got saved? And we think I've given up all of that for this, because this is what's important. And I can rejoice in this. I can never really rejoice in all that junk behind me. But I can rejoice in this now. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul is talking about. And that's what happened on the road to Damascus. He fell to his knees. He's saying, wow. This is, this, this is God. And I thought all this time I was godly. I'm not. Okay, so let me finish up. We're still a long way to go. Um, I've lost the place on my notes. Okay. Okay, here we go. Uh, so he recognized that attitude and the positional change, and we should see this exchange in the same transactional way. So verses 4 to 7, Paul's confidence in the flesh is all, is all worthy of loss. He says, this is worth nothing to me. Uh, in verse 4, his confidence was in his flesh, and his status was among men. Notice in verse 4, it says, I also have confidence in the flesh. If you know another man thinketh that he is, he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. 
So he, he, had, he is confident within his flesh and his status was among men. He describes his confidence, painting a portrait of himself, which is a huge contrast between his pre-salvation motivation, which was to destroy the church, and what we read in verses 16 to 18 of chapter 2. Remember, we looked at that. He was a sacrificial servant. He was willing to sacrifice whatever it took. It didn't matter to him if he had to die that somebody would get saved. He would be willing to die so somebody could get saved. He knows that he had great confidence in the advantages of his life in the past until he met Christ and had a chance to compare himself. And that's what he did. He compared what his life was like to what his life was going to be like, and he wanted, I want the new, I want the new life. In verses 5 to 7, Paul describes his confidence by listing his life achievements. Some were inherited achievements, some were earned. But just look at what he says in verse 5. His circumcision was the right ritual. He said, I'm, I'm circumcised the eighth day of the, of the stock of Israel. So his circumcision was right, as far as the law is concerned. He's, he's from the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew and a religious leader. His pedigree spoke volumes of who he was and God's plan for Israel. Uh, and so he understood all of that. In verse 6, his reputation as a, as a persecutor of Christians by choice was valuable to his identity. He liked being the, being the person that was going to destroy the church. He wanted to be the person that would destroy the church. Um, in verse 6, also talks about his righteousness was grounded in the law, thinking that he was blameless. He actually called himself blameless. But he was he was to be blamed because he was not saved. Right? I mean, that's the way it is. You, you're, when you're not saved, you are, you, you're not blameless. You are to be blamed until you get saved. And then all of that is taken away. And now you have the righteousness of God covering you. You have the shed blood of Christ washing over you. And so, uh, in verse 7, when he met Christ, he recognized that he was valued, he was valuing the wrong things. He valued himself on what his resume said of himself. And that was gain or profit to him. That's what was important to him at the time before he met Christ. When he met Christ in Acts chapter 9, he counted his confidence in his flesh as nothing um, but a loss um, being a hindrance. So everything that he's done was a hindrance to him. And that's why he said, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to go back to any of that stuff. I don't want to be that. I don't want to be a Jew. I don't want to be a Hebrew. I don't want to be a, a Pharisee. I don't want to be a persecutor of the church. I don't want to be any of that stuff because it doesn't do me any good. He says, what does me good is to rejoice in Christ. So everything is comparing, really, that kind of lifestyle that we could live today, some of us do live it today, even though we are saved, we still live like that. He says, that versus joy, rejoicing in Christ. And so he goes on uh, and he says, I'm not, let me back up for a second. He says, this does not mean that Paul lost status, uh, but his actions damaged the cause of Christ. Uh, I mean, some people still thought Paul was, was a good guy because of his testimony, until they found out he was a Christian and he was living in, in, as, as a Christian, and then that bothered them. And then they wanted to get rid of him. So, okay. So Paul knew what it was like to be a Jew in the highest sense of the term, yet in comparison to Christ, he was willing to abandon the status of Jewish position for the knowledge of Christ. What are we willing to give up for the knowledge of Christ? What are we willing to give up that our life would, would be a reflection of the shining Shekinah glory of God, living in that, living in joy, reflecting the joy of, of a Christian. 
And that's what we see in verses 8 to 11. As Paul's confidence in Christ, this is what he gained. This is what you could gain as well. Verses 8 to 11 says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. You see the switch over from verses 4 to 7, where Paul talks about what he was, to the verses uh, 8 to 11, where he talks about what he wants to be. This is, this is the, the, the attitude that Paul had that we should all develop as well. So in verses 4 to 7, Paul gave us what was worthy of loss. And now in verses 8 to 11, he gives us what is worthy of gain. So you could say this is a, uh, it's almost like a profit and loss statement on spirituality, on, on being a spiritual person, being a spiritual uh, reflection of Christ. So in verse 8, the first gain is that, the, that he gains the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Now, look at that statement. Uh, he says uh, in verse 8, at the beginning of that, he says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. I, I count everything as lost. I just want to know the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. What does that mean? The excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Excellency describes an all-surpassing greatness. The excellency of, of knowledge of Christ. This is the one thing that you should know. Uh, maybe you know how to um, build a house. Maybe you know how to dig a ditch. But the thing that you need to know is Christ. Because that's the excellency of, of the knowledge. There is no knowledge that exceeds the knowledge of Christ. You could have, you could have, you know, you could be a, a, a scientist, a doctor, uh, a fortune uh, earner, whatever. What Paul is saying is that what's important is the knowledge of Christ. No other knowledge is important than that. In Paul's view, there's nothing in the world that exceeds the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. He told the Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, when he wrote, wrote to them, that he had determined not to know anything but Christ and him crucified. That's what he said to the, to the church. I don't want to know anything but Christ and him crucified. He didn't just want to know Christ, but he, but he wanted to know Christ, his love, which passes all understanding. We see that in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. And Paul did not just want to know who Christ was. There's a difference between knowing, because, you know, when, before I got saved, I knew that Jesus Christ existed existed in a sort of kind of a ascending way, you know, where, yeah, yeah, okay, we have Easter, we have Christmas, so, okay, so Jesus Christ, you know, I, so I know who he is, but I didn't know him, right, and so what Paul is saying is, is he wants to not just know about Christ, he wants to know him, he wants to know his love and passes all understanding, he didn't just want to know him, he wanted to know him more than intellectually, he wanted to know Christ experientially, maybe we would say personally, and we talk about a group personal relationship. He wanted to know Christ personally. And all Christians know Christ as we see in John 10. Remember in John 10 where he says, the sheep know my voice and they follow after me. But in John 17, Jesus Christ is praying in verse 3 and he prayed that the believers should know God by knowing Christ. And John also wrote in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, 
Now, there's a lot of no's in there, so turn over to this passage. I need, you need to see this. First John chapter 5, verse 20. First John chapter 5 verse 20 says this, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us has given us an that we what may know him that is true and that we are in Jesus Christ that this is the true God and eternal life. So when you look at verse 20, you notice that he says, We know that the Son of God has come. And he also says that we know him that is true, and we know and we are in him, even in God's true Son. There's a lot. There's a lot in that verse that's exactly everything that I'm talking about. Um, salvation is not just I know about Christ. It's a relationship in which I say, I am in him. I am in Christ and Christ is in me. Then he says, not only does he say that he wants to know, but he wants to win, win Christ. I mean, is there a competition here going on that he hasn't re revealed to us yet? No, he's talking about winning Christ in a different way. To win Christ is not to win a prize, but it's to have victory over the flesh. You win Christ when you have victory over your flesh. So to win, uh, I'm sorry, to, to win Christ does not just mean by merit or deed or promise, but to be like Christ, basically your identity becomes Christ. So you start looking like Christ, acting like Christ, thinking like Christ. Remember one of the things that we want to do is take over let, let Christ's mind be in us. And so, in verse 9, the next gain that we see in verse 9 is to be found in him and to be in Christ is the place that defines Paul's relationship. That's where Paul wanted to be was in Christ. That's where you should want to be is in Christ. So he is intertwined with Christ that was in him. So this is, a, this is an important concept. So Paul, having mentioned it over 160 times in his letters, he talked about being in Christ. In some way, in some verses, different places. Chapter 2, verse 20. That Christ was living in him, directing his life because of the love that Christ had for him. And I'll just turn over here and read that. You don't have to turn there if you want to. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. watching my video and you're still there I hope it's working okay so let me wrap this up verses 10 and 11 Paul expresses a final gain of knowing and becoming like Christ he realizes the power of his resurrection the impact of being saved the power of his resurrection is that his whole life has been changed and flipped upside down and he has a whole other purpose in life experiencing the fellowship of his suffering he wanted to know what Christ dealt with. He wanted to understand Christ. And the only way he could do that is to experience the same thing. Uh, and attending to, unto the resurrection, being worthy of being resurrected. And every one of us that are believers are going to be are worthy of resurrection. So there's nothing that Paul could have contributed to his resurrection. It's all Christ, and he recognizes that and understands that. And he sought to have the knowledge of Christ and to be found in Christ, leading him to becoming like Christ. And that's the whole section he's talking about. So in chapter 2 at the end we're talking about sacrificial serving as a missionary or a minister of the gospel uh, and taking on those character traits but then you still that you still need the other part of looking like a Christian 
which is looking like Christ. So Paul, well, let me just wrap this up and we'll be done. Paul was not a nominal Christian, nor is he too far above us that we could not emulate him. We can be like Christ. We can be just like Paul. Our life as a believer must be how to get closer to Christ. Every day should be us moving closer to closer and closer to being like Christ so that we are in Christ and he is in us. And so when we, we, when we know Christ, as Paul knows Christ, and can rejoice in that, then we will want to share that with other people. That will motivate us to evangelize. The joy that we find in being who we are and counting everything that's lost. So if you're counting everything that you have as lost or had as lost, you can kind of recognize what's going on in somebody else's life that they just, it's not helping them either. And you have the answer. The answer is Christ. So, uh, so we'll, we'll finish, and uh, we'll try to be back in this back in this room again. Uh, uh, I don't know how things are going to go fully, um, but uh, so far so good. So uh, there is main service at ten thirty. Um, Brian's preaching, and then all the chairs are back in the auditorium. And so when you go in, you might want to just try to be uh, sensitive to social distancing. Um, try not to sit too close to people. Just give everybody a little bit of space to break, you know, to be, to be separated. Um, just for your protection as well. So let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Father, dear Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for all that you showed us. Uh, the example of Paul and just how much, Lord, he desired uh, to consider his life unworthy, but uh, before Christ, but the life that he has now is a joyful life. We want to understand that, Lord. We want our life to be joyful. We want to, we want to be joyful ourselves the way Paul was. Help us to learn and apply 